One, two, good morning. Hello. Hello, everyone. All right. I know. I know you are enjoying your lovely, meaningful, life-giving conversations, but we've got work to do. And so, if you have your Bibles to... I was kidding. No, I, I don't know. Whatever. Uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you are new, welcome. Um, we are very thankful to have you um, dedicate this part of your Sunday to gathering with us this morning. My name is Obed. I'm one of the pastors here, um, along with our very own Dan Bulls, everyone. Um, great job, by the way. Worship team, music team, that was brilliant. Thank you for leading us in worship and reminding us of the truths of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Um, so turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We've been um, navigating our way through slowly but surely um, the wonderful but also complex book of Ecclesiastes. And I can't remember when we started. Do we start? I can't remember. But we're going to be done just before Easter. Um, and we will be done just before Easter, and then we're going to jump into another book. But it's been incredible, um, really discovering what God has to say to us and teach us through the book of Ecclesiastes. This week, we are in chapter 9, and we are going to be looking at six verses in chapter 9. Six verses in chapter 9. And so, stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through to 6, reads, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and, who, um, and who, him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all, also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Wow. Um, verse 5, <laughs> for the living know <laughs> that they will die but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God that desires to speak to us. You're a God that desires for us to understand the truths of your word. 
And so this morning, as we approach this time of exploring what you have to say to us in your word, I pray, God, that we would approach it with confidence, knowing that you want to speak to us. We also know that you, through your spirit, will open up the eyes of our hearts so that we may know and understand who you are and we may live in light of all of these truths. You are a good God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Charles Dickens is one of the most well-known English authors of the 19th century. Um, His works, which include Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, and The Christmas Carol, are classics. These works of his were innovative at the time because they used a form of literature that was rare at the time. And this form of literature um, was known as realism. Okay, realism. Realism was a movement that occurred in the mid-19th century that focused on the real-life events and the real lives of the lower and middle class during a time of industrial and social change. All right? Before these works, before the rise and rise and rise of realism, the most popular form of literature was Romanticism, which was mostly depicted in poetry. Realism aimed to capture the reality, that is, okay, the reality, while Romanticism and all the other literary forms similar to that was known for their passion of the natural world and interest in the mystic and supernatural. All right, it's this all making sense. Welcome to a brief history lesson, everybody. But I promise it will make sense. So real, realism wants to capture what is real, where romanticism and everything associated with it was all about just uh, being idealistic. The preacher, who's the author of Ecclesiastes, which is a book we just read a section of, I would say is a realist, okay? He's a realist. From the opening words of this book, the preacher has been sharing his musings about life. And he's been doing it in a brutally honest way. He's not been pulling any punches or trying to paint a pretty lovely picture of life as we know it, he's been honest. From the start, he's been trying to help us see how meaningless life is. He often describes life under the sun here on earth as hevel. Hevel is a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. 
just like the puff of smoke that rises from a cigarette or the cloud of smoke that rises from a campfire, according to the preacher, life, which he describes as a mist, is a vapor or a puff of smoke, meaning life is fleeting and futile. It's short and it's also very fragile, okay? Um, the other day, was it yesterday, I met two friends of mine. I don't know if I could call them friends, um, but they were, you know, they were Mormons, and I was talking to them about Ecclesiastes and, you know, all that means, and I was trying to explain the whole idea of life being sure and um, life being also very fleeting and everything like that. And they were listening and I was trying to understand what they believe and whether what they believe is in correlation with what Ecclesiastes is teaching. And they did. They had some good things to really relate with. And um, I had a really good conversation with them. And I am telling you guys this because I think Ecclesiastes is one of the most most effective books to engage non-Christians with. People that don't have any spirituality or faith or whatsoever, it's awesome. I think you guys should be saying, man, like, uh, you know, what if, when, they, when they ask you what, you've been, what you did over the weekend, say, I went to church and we've been looking at this book called Ecclesiastes and it talks about death and how life is meaningless and everything and see how they react to that. And so the author, the preacher, is describing life as meaningless. And if we're honest, his description of life as we know it is accurate. Life is tough. Life is difficult. Life is full of weighty and unpleasant experiences that makes us feel hopeless. But like rays of light, that peers through clouds, or an email informing you that you got the job, or a negative COVID result, or a positive pregnancy result, this section of Ecclesiastes we're going to be jumping, I believe, will provide us with hope in this hopeless world that we live in. Um, as we've been exploring Ecclesiastes, it's hard to try. It's hard to imagine that a book that is so real and so honest would provide hope, um, but it does. And I believe this unit, these six verses we're going to be studying this morning, um, will give us hope in this hopeless world. You guys ready to jump in? It's brilliant. Right. So we are provided with hope in a hopeless world because, number one, God's love is unwavering. God's love is unwavering. Look at verse 1 again. It says, But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. And so the preacher, as you've noticed, was a profoundly wise man. Since the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, he has been waxing eloquent about life and everything associated with life. Here in verse 1 of chapter 9, he reveals something else in life he has spent a lot of time thinking about, and that is this, how the righteous and the wise 
and their deeds are in the hand of God. If you were to read the Bible from cover to cover, you would find that the phrase hand of God shows up several times, 16 times to be exact. Um, the Bible uses this phrase not to describe one of God's body parts, all right, but as a metaphor to express God's power, love, supervision, and control. And so with this in mind, okay, when verse 1 says the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, it's explaining how God is in control and sovereign over his people and their actions. T.M. Moore says this, each one of us, without regard for what we've done in life or whom we know or what place we might occupy in society, each one of us is in the hand of God and he decides for each of us just what will be for us throughout our lives. Because our lives are in God's hand, he is in complete control and sovereign over our lives. The fact that our good and all-powerful God is in control of our lives should be one of the most comforting truths known to followers of Jesus. And so if you are here and you are a Christian, the truth, okay, it's not an idea, right? The reality that God is in complete control of your life and everything you do should be incredibly encouraging and comforting to you. God is sovereign over every season, every situation, and every circumstance. Nothing you experience escapes God's sovereignty. What are your thoughts on that? How does that make you feel? What are you going through right now? What are you facing? What season are you in? No matter who you are, where you are, the reality is your life is safe and secure in the hands of our gracious and all-powerful God. This truth should be incredibly comforting, yeah? Should be. But the interesting thing is, this is not how the preacher, <laughs> who's the author of Ecclesiastes, feels about this truth. In fact, the truth about God being in control of everything doesn't bring about comfort in his heart, but it actually makes him uncomfortable. How do we know this? Look at verse 1 again, okay? And look at the last part of verse 1. Remember, it says, But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Here it is. Listen to this. Whether it is love or hate, 
man does not know, both are before him. The preacher, like we know, is a firm believer that God is sovereign, but what he's unsure of is whether God loves him or hates him. He's just not sure whether God's disposition towards him is that of love or hate, right? This is what he means when it's, you know, he's talking about God is sovereign and uh, my life is in God's hand whatsoever. And then he says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And so the question is, why is this? Why is he certain that God is sovereign, but uncertain about how God feels about him? Look at verse 2. Provides us with an answer here. Look at verse 2. It says, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is, is as he who shuns an oath. One of the reasons why the preacher is struggling to know whether God loves him or hates him is because who we are does not determine what we go through. All right? Whether you're righteous or wicked, um, whether you're a good person or a bad person, whether you're clean or unclean, whether you offer sacrifices or you do not, whether you're religious or a rebel, whether you're rich or poor, black, white, Hispanic or Asian, old, young, married or single, whoever you are, wherever you live, you share a common destiny with other people. What other people go through is what you will go through. The ups and downs, the highs and lows of life doesn't consider who you are. Philip Ryken says it this way. Listen to this. If there are heavy storms, the righteous get flooded out with the wicked. Okay? If there is an earthquake... Right? We can relate to this. We live in San Diego. Okay? I've not experienced um, a devastating earthquake yet, but I've heard, like, living in San Diego, earthquakes are a thing, and we could experience one soon. And so if there was an earthquake, both whether you're a Christian and you love Jesus or not, okay, houses will fall down, and if there is a depression they both go broke. We both go broke. Therefore, we will never be able to separate the righteous from the wicked on the basis of what happens in the world. It is impossible to tell who has and who does not have God's eternal favor. Um, the righteous and the wicked do not only endure the hardships of life, but I think worst of all, both the righteous and the wicked experience death. There's a lot of things we all have in common. But one of the things we all definitely have in common is that we will all die. Death is a destiny we all share. No matter who we are or how well we live, our time on earth will end in death. 
And if you kind of read down to verses 11 and 12, the preacher elaborates this um, on this a bit more. This week, I officiated my first funeral. A pastor friend of mine was recovering from COVID. He was not able to go, so he said, look, Obed, I need you. Can you step in and do a funeral for me? And I was like, okay, I'll help you. It was this funeral of a 76-year-old woman. Her death was incredibly challenging and tough for her friends and family. For a fact, for sure, they're going to continue to grieve her death for many years to come. After the funeral, when I was telling people, yeah, I did a funeral, people would ask me, um, how was it? How was it for you? Just officiating a funeral. And I said, man, funerals are tough. Incredibly hard. But they get harder the younger the person is. Or when the person who died had a good reputation. The funeral of a baby is more devastating than the funeral of someone who's older, right? The funeral of a good, honorable person is way more distressing than the funeral of you know, a mob leader or a serial killer or something like that. The funeral of a child who died because of hunger is way more tragic than the funeral of a corrupt leader. The fact that death is shared by all peoples, no matter who they are, is extremely hard to understand and accept when we really think about it. And how we feel about this reality, this kind of unfairness in life, is how the preacher felt, all right? He's in a great deal of discomfort by the fact that our great enemy, death, comes to all. That's why at the beginning of verse 3, he describes it as an evil in all that is done under the sun. Sometimes, People who die don't deserve to die. <laughs> Sometimes people who die are not expected to die at the time in which they die. And this certainty that everybody dies, no matter who you are, is difficult to understand and accept. It's definitely something that is unfair. It's a tragedy and it's a sad reality we all have to live with. And this is one of the reasons why the preacher is not sure whether God loves him or hates him. He's very much like, God, you are sovereign and in control of everything, and, and you are a good God, and why do you, good God, allow bad things to happen to good people? Doesn't make sense. Do you love us, God? And this tension, right, and this struggle... It's not unique to the author of Ecclesiastes. But I think 
what are you struggling with? It's what we all struggle with at times, and that is we know that God is all-powerful and in complete control, but at times we doubt his love for us. Jerry Bridges, who wrote an awesome book titled Trusting God, um, says this, It seems the more we come to believe in and accept the sovereignty of God over every event in our lives, the more we are tempted to question his love. And it's just so true, isn't it? That God, you are so powerful. You are so in complete control of everything. And the Bible also tells us that you're a good and gracious God. And if you are God, why, why do you allow good people, why do you allow your people to go through adversity? If you're here and you're like... <laughs> I definitely can relate to this. I have a hard time believing that God actually loves me and cares for me. The question I want us to really think about and I want you to think about is why do you question God's unwavering love for you? Why do you question and why do you doubt that God truly loves you? When you encounter some sort of difficulty, what causes you to question that God truly loves you? And so if God is perfect in his love and abundant in his goodness, how do we take a stand against our own doubts and the temptation to question the love of God? What truths about God do we need to store up in our hearts to use as weapons against temptations to doubt his love? Jerry Bridges provides four truths to help us here. Okay, And the first is God's love at Calvary. God's love at Calvary. If we want proof of God's love for us, then we must look first at the cross where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Number two, God's family love. Through Christ, we are adopted as God's children and God has sent his Holy Spirit to live within us and remind us that we are indeed his children and he is our Abba Father. That's incredibly powerful, y'all. God is our Father? For real? This is what bugs me about myself and about my relationship with God. These incredibly powerful truths can become so familiar to me, I hear them and they don't have no effect on me. 
I kind of hear, God is my father. He's my Abba father. And I'm like, cool. Is that it? God, because of Jesus, if you are here and you are, you have surrendered your life to Jesus, God, the creator of the universe, is your father. Number three, help to help us overcome our tendency to doubt God's love. Number three, we need to recognize that God's love for us is evident because of our relationship with Christ, right? God does not look within us for a reason to love us, all right? He loves us because we are in Christ. God's love to us cannot fail any more than his love to Christ can fail. And lastly, God's sovereign love. It is our union with Christ that guarantees that God's sovereign power is exercised on our behalf. This does not mean we should not expect any adversity in this life, but it does mean that those adversities are being controlled by God and used by him only in ways that his wisdom and love dictate. You are truly loved by God. His love for you is unwavering and his love for you is unstoppable. And there is nothing in this world, no one in this world that can separate you from the love of God. You don't believe me? You think I made that up? I didn't. Because if you look at Romans chapter 8, 35 to 39, which is one of my favorite passages of all time, look at what it says. It's going to come up. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Come on. It's awesome. Amazing. So, may this truth, okay, now the fact that God's love for you is unconditional and unwavering, may this truth supply you with hope in this hopeless world. And so, right, we've seen that God's love for us is unwavering, okay, this provides us hope. Um, we can find hope in a helpless in a hopeless world because eternal life is a reality. Eternal life is a reality. Um, look at verse four. It says, "But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead dog." In order to compare life and death, what the preacher does is he quotes um, a proverb which contrasts a living dog with a dead lion. In those days, in the ancient world, similar to our day and age, lions were incredibly valued. All right, they were in value, very valued. In contrast, dogs were not as valued and as loved in the way we do in our modern world. Right back then, 
<laughs> dogs were despised. They were viewed as wild and filthy animals, similar to coyotes, all right? Something similar. And so the point the preacher is making with this contrast is that being alive is better than being dead. And so the question is, why is being alive better than being dead when we have to endure so much misery in this world? Because those who are alive have hope. If you are alive, you have hope. If you can hear me, you have hope. This verse is filled with hope only when we look beyond this chapter to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, because once we get to the end, this is what we'll notice. We'll be reminded that this life is not the only life there is. From the beginning of Ecclesiastes, everything the author has been talking about has been limited to life under the sun. That is life here on earth. But in the coming chapters, he'll begin referring to the afterlife. The second reason this passage is filled with hope is because it will cause us to look beyond Ecclesiastes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promise of the resurrection. Ecclesiastes is an awesome book, but it doesn't have all the answers. All the books of the Bible are part of a larger collection of books, and the entire Bible is what gives fuller answers to many of the same questions Ecclesiastes only begins to address. Philip Ryken says this, Ecclesiastes does not have all the answers, nor does it claim to. Remember, this is not the kind of book we keep reading until we get answers, but the kind of book that helps us know how to serve God when we do not have all the answers. This is the exact reason why we need to read Ecclesiastes in the context of the whole Bible. And by the way, one of the most valuable things I learned during seminary was, was, was not, I'm trying to figure out how to do this. Okay, was not taking a verse, okay, and not taking a verse and just focusing on that verse. One of the most helpful things I learned was that context is king. Context is king. Remember that. Context is king. Right? And so you can't just pluck a verse out and be with that verse. You have to look at that verse in light of what comes before and what comes after. The chapter is in, the book it's in, and everything like that. Also, you cannot just take one book of the Bible and benefit from that book alone. Okay, you need to, right, we are very lucky to have access to all of Scripture. We really are. But the beauty of that is we get to not only focus on one book, but we get to focus on the Bible as a whole. It's important that you develop a yearly habit of reading through the entire Bible. Just develop it. We have audio now, right? I have audio. I have this app that I love called Dwell. And they have different people reading, different accents, right? Um, there's a, <laughs> this is amazing. There's a girl from Ireland. Gosh, she reads the Psalms to you, and it's just so soothing. 
you know? I actually emailed them <laughs> and said, look, I think I've got an amazing voice. Would you pay me to read scripture? I would do it. And they said, hey, we'll consider you, you know, in the future. They haven't got back to me yet. But develop the habit of reading through the entire Bible every year. Commit yourself. It's not too late. What's the, what's what, we're in February 6th? It's not too late. Start. Read through the whole Bible. It will be an incredibly beneficial experience for you. Where was I? This is why we need to read Ecclesiastes in the context of the whole Bible. And so, what does the rest of the Bible teach us about the hope available to us? The Bible teaches that true and lasting hope is not found in a philosophy or an idea or a theory, but it's found in a person. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's our living hope. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, gave his life for our sins by dying on the cross. The Bible also teaches that Jesus was buried, but on the third day he rose to immortality as a sign of his victory over Satan's sin and death. And because of what Jesus has done, if we surrender our lives to him, death will be our entrance to eternity where we will rest from all of our labors and enter the presence of God and know the fullness of his joy. As I told you guys earlier, I officiated my first funeral earlier this week. After the reading of the obituary, after we all heard an emotional eulogy from the brother of the deceased, and after we sung some songs, it was my turn to share a message of hope for her family and all those in attendance. As I was sitting there waiting my turn, I'd already prepared something to say, but I was just like, is this going to be sufficient to encourage them? Is this going to be sufficient to instill hope in her friends and family. The deceased was a Christian and she faithfully loved and served Jesus until she passed away. And so this made my job a little easier. And so I walked to the wooden podium which was located at the front of the room not in the center, but on the left. To my left, as I was standing by the podium, was the casket. And the casket was wide open. And in front of me 
were friends and family who were emotionally devastated. I'm standing there praying a lot, saying, God, help me instill hope in these people beyond my manuscript. Inspired by author and pastor R. Kent Hughes, I began my funeral message with the following question. If today, on the day of her funeral, as we are mourning her loss, Carol could materialize and stand before us in radiant health, what would she say? Think about where I was. I am standing in front of devastated friends and family. She's right there. Open cask. I can see her. And I ask the question, if today... On the day of her funeral, as we are mourning her loss, Carol could materialize and stand before us in radiant help. What would she say? And how I answered this question was based on what the Bible teaches about what happens the moment a believer dies. I said, because Carol loved and lived for Jesus, she would tell us that she has seen the welcoming face of the creator of the universe and the savior of her soul, Jesus Christ. Second, I said if Carol could somehow communicate with us, she would assure us that heaven is for real. For many years, she believed this by faith, and now her faith has become sight. Finally, I said, if today, on the day of her funeral, as we are mourning her loss, Carol could materialize and stand before us in radiant health, she would passionately affirm that the gospel is our only hope because it's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Listen, King's Cross Church, right? We have a hope that isn't based on some fleeting idea or passing trend but on the conviction and confidence that our Savior conquered death and is alive today. Seriously, that was the reality we went. She, her physical body was there, right? But she was actually in reality, in heaven, in eternity, enjoying and being consumed by the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's not a fairy tale. It's actually real. 
one of the things Ecclesiastes reminds us over and over again is just how fleeting life is. This life and the things of this world will not last forever. They will fade. But our living hope, Jesus Christ, will never die and his resurrection power will never fade. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.16, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. All right, in his bestseller, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. We are meant to live life like this world is not our home, right? We are meant to live like heaven is the home we've longed for all of our lives. We're meant to live with confidence in this eternal hope because our Redeemer is indeed alive and he alone is our hope. And so if you are wise... If you are wise, you will get ready to die now by asking Jesus to forgive your sins and by trusting him to raise your dead body to eternal life. The certainty of eternal life is what will give us hope in this hopeless world. The unwavering, unconditional, unstoppable love of God is what will give us hope in this world. Let's pray. And so God, thank you for how faithful you are. Thank you for how faithful you've been in providing us and supplying us with everything we need to voyage through this life that you've given us. And so, God, as we have briefly reflected on um, 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 your love and how you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. God, thank you for the reflection on um, the fact that this is not our home, and because of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, we have hope for eternal life. Thank you so much. You are a good God. You are great. You are You are sovereign over everything and everyone. And because of this, no matter what we encounter, we know for sure that your love remains and that you will work in all things for our good and your glory. And so help us to believe this. God, uh, in a room of this size, I am sure that there are people who are facing extreme challenges. And so God, I pray hope that outside of me, outside of what I said, that your spirit will encourage them and give them comfort to believe that you're a God that loves them. And as a result, you are committed to providing them with everything they need to endure whatever life throws their way. You are a good God. We praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.